Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This parable is poised to be a bestseller. I'm sure of it. It could fit well within the the genre of the life after death experience books. I mean, there's lots of these books. They come out all the time. And here, Jesus gives us this story that seems to fit right into that genre. It's poised to be a bestseller. Martin Luther, in a sermon on this, he, he points out all of the different interesting tidbits we could draw from it. We could look at things like, what is the distance from heaven down to Hades? And should we be praying for the dead? And what's the deal with ghosts? You can look at this story and draw from it all sorts of interesting tidbits and lessons. I'm telling you, it's poised to be a bestseller. I've even got a title for you. You ready for this? Hell is for real. (laughs) What do you think? We'll workshop it, all right? But is that really what Jesus is telling us in this story? Is that what it's all about? Or is he making another point? Let's listen again to the story. It starts out, you've got this rich man who is no friend to any of us. This is not the sort of guy that any of us would want to hang out with or that we'd want to associate with. He has feasted sumptuously day after day, and he has ignored all the vulnerable and all those who are in need around him, including this poor guy named Lazarus. Lazarus would be brought to the rich man's gates. He's got these sores. Even the dogs are better friends to this man than the rich man is. And yet, he has ignored him and denied him, neglected him his whole life long. Well, fast forward. And the rich man dies, and so does Lazarus. Lazarus ends up in heaven, and the rich man down in Hades. He's not even dignified with a name. And there he is, down in Hades, and what's he doing? He's just continuing his same selfish, self-centered ways. It's really hot down here. Why didn't anybody tell me about that, right? Hey, Abraham, Abraham, why don't you send old Lazarus down here to cool me off, right? He's still thinking with that same mindset, that same stubborn, faithless heart. And Abraham has to tell him, it's not exactly how these things work here, guys. Sorry about that. And then the rich man, sympathetically, has his first thought, maybe ever, for others. And he's thinking about his kin. He's thinking about his brothers. And so he calls out again. After all of his negotiations and his compromises with Abraham haven't worked, and he says, okay, Abraham, fine, forget about me. But I've got five brothers. And they are on the same highway to Hades, the same road to perdition that I was on. And listen, they are scientific people. They're empirical people. They need proof of heaven. And so if you send Lazarus to them now, They will believe. He's thinking about others. He says, all that my brothers need is a sign. If they can get a sign, then surely they'll believe. And so what's Abraham saying? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, we can definitely do that. Let me just arrange that. Looks like Lazarus. Oh, he's got eternity here. So we've got some time for him to go and do that. Sure. No. He says, listen, rich man, uh, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, they have all of the promises of God already. Already, God has given to them all that he needs to say to them. Let them listen to them. That's where they're going to find their hope and trust. That can awaken faith. Oh, the rich man can't believe this. He's flabbergasted. He said, how can you be so obtuse? How can you be so naive, Abraham? Oh, maybe for you, for religious people like you, those promises are enough. But we are empirical, scientific people. We're modern people. 
And that's not enough just to get those words and promises. We need proof. We need evidence that demands a verdict. We want signs. Then we'll believe. And then Abraham says, or better put, Jesus says through Abraham in the parable, a line that drops an absolute bomb. It's one of those final lines that causes you to reevaluate the whole story that came before it. You know, it's kind of like Sixth Sense, where you see the end of the story, and then you need to go back and watch the beginning. Because Jesus says, through Abraham, if they did not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if they should see a dead person come back to life. Boom. And then we realize this is not a parable about signs or finding proof of heaven at all. Jesus isn't trying to give us a a bestseller about after-death and life experiences. In a sense, it's the anti-proof parable. He's trying to show us where our true foundation is laid, the foundation on which our faith truly stands. Because think about this. Many times throughout his ministry, people were asking Jesus for proof. They were asking him for signs. The very people that he told this story to were the ones who were dogging after him, who were chasing him over and over, saying, why don't you give us a sign from heaven? He wouldn't do it. One sign, he said, they would get, the sign of Jonah, his resurrection. He wouldn't give them any other signs. And why was that? Well, two principal reasons. The first reason is that Jesus knows our human hearts. He knows how fickle and faithless our hearts are. John 2 says that, that Jesus entrusted himself to no man because he himself knew what was in man. He knows that our hearts might say, oh, if only I had those signs, then I would believe. And I wrestle with that because people, skeptics will say this sometimes. Like, if God really wanted us to believe, then he should just right up in the clouds of heaven and then we would see and it would be irrefutable, unmistakable, then we would believe. You ever hear people say that? Maybe you've thought it yourselves. But do you think it's really the case that if God did that, suddenly the world would be converted en masse? That if we saw some kind of sign like that in the heavens or in our own lives even, that then we would truly believe? Or would we find some reason still not to believe? Some excuse why that didn't apply to us or some way that we could reason it away? You know, it's interesting. Jesus is raised from the dead. And who are the first people to deny him? The guards who were there at his tomb. The very people who were there who saw his dead corpse get placed into the grave, rolled that stone over it, and then saw it removed and Jesus escaped. If anyone should believe, they have seen the sign of signs. And yet still... They're the first ones to engage in the cover-up and the conspiracy to lie about the Lord's resurrection. Jesus knows our hearts, and so he's not going to give us some sign, some supposedly irrefutable proof, if that's what you think you need in order to believe. But secondly, he won't do it, because he knows the fickleness, the frailty, the fragility of the signs themselves. Listen, if your faith is founded on some sign from God, it's never going to be certain. It's never going to be sure. Because here's the deal. In this life, still beset with sin and suffering and sorrow, 
you're going to go through difficult times. You're going to go through the hardest of times and wonder, God, where are you? Why don't you show me some sign that you are here and that you are for me? If our faith is founded on signs, that's a very fragile foundation indeed. Because we're always going to be getting some cross signs, some different indicators that would cause us to doubt or even to disbelieve. Jesus doesn't want to give us those signs because he knows that that foundation is fragile and fickle just as our heart is. We need something stronger. We need something more sure. So what is that? If our faith is not founded on signs, on that supposed proof, then what do we build upon? What is that rock-solid foundation on which our lives are established? Well, I found something that made me think about it in the novel No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy. It was later made into a movie, a little bit spooky, just going to warn you, okay? But it tells the story of this man, Sheriff Bell. He's our hero. And he lives in these uncertain, peaceless, chaotic times. And he's been looking for some sort of solid foundation. And toward the end of the book, his mind goes back to something he saw. In the course of his work in the county, one day he came across this old abandoned house, a ramshackle house. But outside of the house, he sees this old stone water trough. He sees the stone water trough. He says, I don't know how long it had been there. A hundred years, 200. You could see the chisel marks in the stone. It was hewed out of solid rock. And it was about six feet long and maybe a foot and a half wide and about that deep. Just chiseled out of the rock. Can you picture it? This rock solid thing. And he goes on to say, why was that? Why had this thing been chiseled to last 10,000 years. What was, the, what was it that this man had faith in? He said, I'm going to say that that water trough is there yet. It would have took something to move it, I can tell you that. So I think about him sitting there with his hammer and his chisel, maybe just an hour or two after supper, I don't know. And I have to say that the only thing, the only thing I can think is that there was some sort of promise in his heart. I don't have no intentions of carving a water stone trough, but I would like to be able to make that kind of promise. I think that's what I would like most of all. What kind of man can make a promise like that? One that will last seemingly eternally. That's what Jesus has done for you. It's his promise on which our lives are founded. It's his promise on which we build. That and that alone is the rock-solid foundation. Because that promise is lodged not in that fickle human heart, but in the unchangeable, enduring heart of God. Because God has made a promise to you, then you can be sure and certain. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. That's where our hope is founded. That in the midst of all of the, the passing chaos of this age, we look to the Lord, we listen to his word, we stake our lives on his promise. There and there alone can we have that surety. How firm a foundation, all you saints of the Lord. How firm a foundation you have in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? who unto the Savior for refuge have fled. We sang those words just a moment ago. And then this, 
The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Your life and mine is founded on something better than any supposed sign. It's founded on the promise of the Savior. And if that's the case, then we are put in this privileged place, a place where we can even wrestle the Lord. I was reminded of this a a few weeks back. The family and I, we were going out for lunch one Sunday afternoon out to to St. Ambrose. And on the way there, my youngest daughter, Ellie, she asked me a question. She had a petition for her father. She said, Daddy, when we get there, can I have a pop? Okay. Now, being a good dad, I don't want to give her too much sugary drinks and so forth. It costs money. But I said to her, we'll see. I think I can probably do that. You know, dads, how we try to hedge, you know, leave ourselves an opening. But when she heard that, what did she hear? Yes. She heard a promise. So we get, to, uh, we get out to St. Ambrose, and we're doing our order and everything, and we, we get our food, and we sit down, and I set in front of Ellie a cup of water. And she looks at it, and she's incredulous. What is this water? I said, honey, you know, the, the pop, it's really not that good for you, and, you know, we, it's just more cost. We're just, you know, putting our money for the food rather than for just some sugary, you know, caloric drink. And she says, no. No, Daddy, you make your promise true. (laughs) You make your promise true. At that point, she's got me in a chokehold, right? She's got her dad in the half Nelson. But you know what? This is the privileged place that you and I get to be before our Heavenly Father. Not when it comes to Pop, but when it comes to His promises. That He has made His promises to you and to me. And he has encouraged, no, he has called us to challenge him, to hold him to it. That in the midst of this life, with all of its sorrow, with all of its sin, with all of its trials and travails, that as we go through it, to say, Lord, you promised, I'm going to hold you to your word. That even when the signs fail, even when our own heart is fickle and can't be trusted, still his word holds fast. Still his promise and his word endures forever. That's what we cling to. That's what it's founded on. And he has gone even one step further. He's gone even one step further to give us these gifts that we call the sacraments. And sacramentum, it comes from this Latin word, sacramentum, which in the ancient world was an oath. It was an oath that soldiers would take. The oath would, the soldiers would take their, their sacramentum. They would take their oath that would say, I will be faithful and loyal even unto death. Nothing will keep me from keeping that promise. And if it does, so help me God. See, God has not only given us his promise and word, but also he has taken this oath in holy baptism, in holy communion, that he says, here, here I stake my life on this promise. He did it this morning for Claire. He made that promise to Claire and said, you are my child. Nothing will separate you from my love. And he does it for all of us. Week by week, as we gather to receive his very body and blood, he makes that promise to you and to me, nothing, no nothing, 
though nothing can shake you from my love. That's what our life is founded on. Signs, if they come, are great. They're gravy. They're the whipped cream on the top. But that's not what we're promised. What we are promised is the unfailing, unflagging presence of your Savior for you. And rest assured, he makes his promises true. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.